Good morning, I'm Frank Kaufman, president of the Professor's World Peace Academy. Welcome to the PWPA Scholars Interview Series. We are fortunate and honored to have back with us for the Professor's Interview Series, Dr. Craig Considin. In a prior time, we did an interview with Dr. Considin on his award-winning scholarly writing, The Humanity of Muhammad, A Christian View. That interview was very well received, as was the book. Dr. Considin is an award-winning professor and best-selling author of The Humanity of Muhammad, A Christian View. Dr. Considin is recognized as an authority in the interfaith dialogue. He has written seven books and multiple articles for the field of Christian-Muslim relations and Islamic studies. Dr. Considine's opinions appear regularly in leading news and media outlets around the world. Considine also has experience in filmmaking, having directed the critically acclaimed documentary film Journey into America. He is a practicing Roman Catholic of Irish, Italian, Scottish, and English descent, and a native of Needham, Massachusetts. Dr. Considine holds a PhD in sociology from Trinity College, Dublin, an MSc in international relations from Royal Holloway, and a Bachelor of Arts in international relations from American University in Washington, D.C. Today, we will be discussing his most recently published scholarship entitled People of the Book, Prophet Muhammad's Encounters with Christians, Without further ado, please join me to welcome Dr. Considine to our program. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Considine, great to see you. Thanks very much for making time to be with us today. Thank you. We're really grateful. Thank you, sir. Yeah. So you've produced yet another book. Do you have any idea how it's doing? Is it kind of hitting the charts? And It's not as high as The Humanity of Muhammad, the previous book. Some of that has to do with the publisher, but it also has to do with just lack of in-person events because those are big, they're they're book signings. So people will buy big bulk and then have an in-person book signing, but we can't really do that. I've done a couple, but not as many as I I would have hoped. Okay. Hopefully that horizon will open open up, not just for your book, but for the rest of us to go out and spend a day out with the family. So you changed publishers because we did a conversation on humanity and it was really informative. And so this one, this one was hard work. It was serious to get it out on a schedule the way you have. Yeah, it was more heavy into the academic side of things. Um, The Humanity of Muhammad was kind of a more popular book with a publisher that isn't simply academic. It can be academic. But this one was new territory for me as well, diving into really Christian history as much as Islamic history. So it's just, it was a completely different book project. You know, everyone has its own unique flair. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so you went with a slightly more academic publisher. Yes, sir. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It has, yeah, it has a deal with Oxford University Press. So Oxford sells. They have distribution rights here in North America yeah. and then and elsewhere around the world. It goes under Hearst. I don't necessarily understand that dynamic, but I'm thankful for an excellent publisher, obviously like Oxford to yeah. at least have some interest in the book. That's always good. Yeah, that's a great accomplishment. So you, um, different things add different pluses. Maybe the popular book makes a couple of bucks more, but to have Oxford as a notch on your belt will open up a bigger universe for sure. Oxford is great on interreligious affairs. They have a lot of the huge departments dedicated purely to various interreligious, bilateral interreligious communities. I've worked with, I can't remember names right now, but they're uh, the Oxford group on Hinduism. It's, um, it's yeah. powerful. I mean, it's mighty in the yeah, world of uh, scholarship in that arena. And sure. so, yeah, wishing you a lot of success on the Thank sales you. and stuff. And it's interesting, we haven't had a chance to speak yet, you and I, but I prepared questions. And even just in this little short 
chat before I get to my questions, already some of the things have come up because the book is kind of a hybrid, I feel. There is a, an enormously popular feel to it. Mm. Correct? I mean, was that yeah. you're trying to you have a readership beyond just that kind of narrow academic kind of jousting match? I, I've been in the academy <laughs> myself and it gets very narrow and very intense in there. It but does. The way I yeah. read this one, people, people of the book, it, it reads, you know, everybody can read it. The guy in the church can read it. The guy who has a new Muslim worker in the office, it, it, it reads well enough. And a lot of yeah. academic work doesn't. Yeah. And this is something that I consciously and deliberately do. I want to tell a really good story. It's a book and a book needs to be interesting. It needs to be engaging. It needs to flow. It needs to leave readers kind of a little on edge. Like, where is this going? Whereas like an academic article or book, it's like, you, you know, like it's, it's, it's like overly structured and yes, it is more intense. There's no doubt. Right. Because it's more academic in nature, but I think academics can do a little bit more and I'm speaking broadly, to make their work more easily digestible in the public realm. Yeah. And I think this is really important because it ultimately gets back on what the academic's aim and goal is. You know, who is the audience? Yeah. I often ask my students about the question of like, you know, who are you writing for? Who, who's your audience? Or who are you speaking to? Correct. And I'm inspired by other let's say more unconventional academics like Karen Armstrong, you know, like there you the, go. One of the reason why I loved her books was because they were so well-written. It was such a good story, but it was also very well-sourced and well-cited. So That's people right. of the book, like if you go into the notes section and I'm sure you saw that Frank, it's huge, probably too big, probably too big. Cause I'm like, well, this is really technical. I don't want to shove it in the text because readers are going to be like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. What are we yeah. getting into? So I just put it in the back, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned structure, and uh, that was not in my prepared question, but it, it is in me that you're blending two things. It's both thematic and chronological, the books, yes. because yes. you start with the prophet, uh, peace be upon him, you start with the prophet as a little baby, <laughs> kind of meeting a Christian. <laughs> what does a little baby know from who's a christian who's anything right yeah but it's yeah, just whether it's a nice guy or not or lady or not and so and then it goes all the way to his farewell sermon so it's chronological yes, but then sir. you have these fantastic thematic breakdowns through six or seven chapters angels and souls and uh, uh and yeah. so that must have been it's interesting i was curious about how was that hard or was it fun or and can you speak to that for a second about this blending chronology and blending thematic, which are often your options, never, yeah. rarely both? Well, you brought up the term fun and the writing the book was fun, but it was also difficult. But researching the book was really fun, different. You know, that's when you're reading, you're like, wow, look at all these stories. And, you know, I started obviously documenting the, the timeline of his life, but I think it was maybe a year into the start of the book where I really had to make a decision, you know, there's a deadline. So I'm thinking in my head, all right, I, I need to, I need to make sure I'm delivering this manuscript when I said I would. So I looked at my text and I had 18 chapters, very short chapters. And I would focus on pretty much either in the names of individuals or groups. So the story that you mentioned, Frank, is Muhammad's encounter with Bahira the monk. So like chapter one was Bahira the monk, and then it went to like Waraka ibn Nafal, and then it went all the way down. And I thought that could have worked, but then I started thinking, well, like what is the bigger picture here? And what are the different phases of his life? So like the six or seven chapters, I can't even remember now how many chapters there are, but it's, it's really parts of his life that I, I, I was like, you know, at this point in his life, it's the, it's the mystic 
that comes out, you know, prior to Muhammad receiving his revelations in the year 610, like um, he was, he was in many ways a mystic uh, and he was meeting mystics. And I think he liked spending time with mystics. And some of these mystics happened to be, to be Christians, I think. So there was a significant rewrite to blend that chronology and that thematic analysis. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's quite a it's quite a challenge, quite a challenge, and I, I thought you you managed it very well. In a certain way, you're stepping into like it's bad enough to try to like get in a walk in the middle of a big a single big argument, and somehow you managed to walk into like five big arguments or something like that. The Christian yeah. Trinity, the Christian theological argument, the Muslim historical argument, the textual argument. It's like I thought it's like it's kind of like a testament to courage in a way, the book itself in a way. Well, I think, you know, that's the power of stories. Like a really good story is not complicated. And it and it's like in many ways, I I, I kind of it's not that I dumb things down, but I I really try to make things as simple as possible. And I think that when you when you maybe when you make things simple, it it chal- it challenges people uh, to think whether it is that simple, could it be that simple? So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a mystery. I don't have the answers as to, to why I'm potentially able to get a reader thinking about five different things at one time. I don't know. I don't deliberately do that. I'll tell you that. I, I'm not that skillful. But yeah, it goes back to my audience. Like when you just tell simple stories, it, it gets a wider group of people thinking about something. Mm, mm. Maybe, that's, maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I meant by what I meant by stepping in a big melee is that the Muslims alone by themselves will be arguing about their own history, not with knives out, but, you know, like there's schools of thought that are are just wildly intensely um, not at I don't want to give it a bad look, but, you know, at odds and they're intensely on opposite sides of a lot of issues. Just, just in a single. Then you go to the Christian theological history or history of Christian yes. thought, which which you cover. And the only reason why you're covering it is to bring it is to show how it juxtaposes to the, the prophet's life. Precisely. Yes. But the thing is that while while you're on your way to kind of saying getting the Christian story there, as uh, what is it? it it's it's not your point. It's just wanting to show who the prophet is meeting. You're going to have a bunch of Christians yelling and yeah. screaming. Those oh, are yeah. existing arguments theologically also. Yep. And this is uh, one of the ramifications and consequences of writing about these things. You know, you're going to ruffle feathers. You know, you can't please everyone, as my mom taught me. So this issue of different groups of Christians looking at the text, the book that I wrote, and how I describe some of the Christians that Muhammad interacted with. You know, I really tell the, the history of Christianity in this book as well. Yes. And essentially what I'm arguing is that the groups of uh, Christians and the, ind- the individuals, many of the individuals that Muhammad had uh, interacted with were basically considered by the overwhelming Christian authorities in the world as potential outsiders, or to put it in, in starker terms, heretics. So there are Christian leaders who are friends of mine, who are critical of my work, and that's fine, who basically say, like, I've got the Christianity wrong, that I've told the wrong version of Christianity. And therefore, you know, and these, and these are the people, these Christian leaders are those who are increasingly hesitant to see like a blending of Christianity and Islam. Because that's what kind of what I'm saying in this book is that like, you know, some of these Christians and Muhammad basically had the same ideas about the, the almighty, about creation and the creator. And when you put it that way, it's like, hey, these were you know brothers in spirit and perhaps even in faith, but they identify themselves as, as different, perhaps with different categories and identities. You know, that challenges people's fundamental core beliefs. 
to put this precisely in context, it was how this criticism that I received from uh, another Christian leader, which was done in private, which I really appreciate and respect rather than doing it publicly. And the criticism of my work was that I had misdescribed the relationship between Peter and Paul. And my understanding is that Peter and Paul were cordial, but they had significantly different approaches and beliefs. And then this ultimately developed over the course of three centuries. And then when we get to 325 with the Council of Nicaea, a lot of stuff happens there. And I talk about this in the book, you know? And uh, so, yeah, like you, you know, you're going to get criticism from Christians. You're going to get criticism from Muslims from, from all different walks of life. And that's just what it is. And I, I respect, I respect that if people have criticism of my work, great, but please do it in private. That's always (laughs) kind, you know, it's very kind to do that. (laughs) Like the the Yelp, the Yelp of of the scholar's life. It's like the poor restaurant is trying to survive. And one guy gets a, the pickle in the wrong part of his hamburger and destroys the rest. So this Pretty is much. a quest, you know, talk to yes. me. I'll, get, I'll try to improve and get it right. Especially yeah. if we're friends, you know, especially, if, you know, people criticize my work who have never met me in, in, in their life. And they create, you know, YouTube videos about how, how terrible of a scholar and a person I am. I mean, they haven't even met me, but yeah. you're my, if, if you're my friend, Hey, like be a good friend. If you want to inform me and criticize me, I'm all for it. Good friends do that, but please do it respectfully. You know. Yeah, it's it's part of the it's part of the uh, disease of the time. Yes, sir. The keyboard is so close, and our own little 15 minutes of fame, and that's so often riding on riding on the labors of others. It's mm-hmm. kind of like suddenly everybody has something to say to Joe Rogan. What do I have to say to Joe Rogan? But that's the big light. So my little voice one. And so yeah. there you have, you've like killed yourself, put a book out. You've done a lot of scholarship, a lot of reading. And here's a chance to kind of ride on somebody else's. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's an ego. I think it's a, there's like an ego element to it. There's a, an en- there's envy and I think jealousy, unfortunately. Um, you know, where where I'm doing something that other people wish they were doing more of. Mm-hmm. And and that that is sad and that's upsetting. You know, I don't I don't want to see that energy anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but it is what it is. It is. And also the academy has always been the academy has always been the place where there's a bit of exhibitionism with one's intellect. One one wants to be heard wider so uh, a a mature friend will come and get into it over over an evening with you on the christian theology and those are sweet nights yes with food yes with food and hospitality yes absolutely but i mean if that's what you got if you don't got a fat if you got a fat wallet you pick up the check for 20 people and you're looking good but if you're in the world of the mind people want to be seen with their ideas and that's why they'll they might criticized publicly because that's what that's what the academy is in a way it's kind of an exhibition of how how smart we are yeah. it's it's that's the that's the challenge of the, that's of the, the yeah. discipline and the art let me look at a couple of my own questions oh how if if one goes to your site which we'll, we'll have linked in the uh on the notes craigconsidine.com uh, no what is it I, I think it's doc i think it's dr craig drcraigconstantine.com it'll be in the notes one sees that your phd is in sociology yes some of your work is in international relations and and the like and yet you've produced a work that's highly theological and religious history history of uh of christian thought history of muslim uh theological scriptural development when did the christian muslim conversation become a thing in your life oh wow that is a great con- uh, question. Yeah, because my journey, you know, my academic journey, if I can bring you back, I think I have to go back to answer that question. Please do. It be- yeah, it starts in 2004. I'm an undergraduate at American University. 
I transferred to Washington, uh, to American in Washington, DC with the hope of really trying to like understand what happened on 9-11. And I had really no literacy or experience related to Islam. Uh, Never met a Muslim. Grew up in Needham, Massachusetts, um, primarily Christian and small Jewish population. So I, I go to DC and I was interested in like international affairs, politics. And when I get there, I'm interested in learning Arabic, which I did, and looking more at the international angles, you know, because there was a, this huge discussion of like, you know, Islam being like this completely other civilization, which is like completely, completely different way of life. So I was like, all right, well, who are they? And why did they, why did they do this on 9-11? So I get into another class, which was called the World of Islam with Professor Akbar Ahmed. And on the first day of class, he had shared with me a hadith or a saying of Prophet Muhammad, which is the ink of the scholar is more sacred than the blood of the martyr. And for whatever reason, those words coming from him too, like really shook me to my core because it challenged really the fundamental beliefs of what um, I thought I was studying. I I thought I was studying like religion and like, politics and civilization but dr ahmed put it in terms of like well there's like there's something sacred going on with with knowledge and learning and and dialogue and meeting people so it's not just the knowledge that comes from peer-reviewed journal articles and books it's the knowledge that also comes through human experience so that fascinated me and i get into Islamic studies through the interfaith dialogue prism, because I saw interfaith dialogue and all the things that come with it as the antidote to the clash of civilizations. So I went under Dr. Ahmed's wing. When I graduated and moved on, I went to London. I came, I came back. My master's thesis was looking at the lived experiences of Mexican-Americans in the American Southwest. It actually mm-hmm. had nothing to do with Islam. Mm-hmm. I come back to the United States and I joined Professor Akbar Ahmed on his two-year ethnographic study called Journey into America, The Challenge of Islam. And I was Mm -hmm. his film director and we wrote a book. So this was exploring the question of what it meant to be an American through the lens of Muslims. So I did that, you know, still not in Did you say you were his film director? I was his film director. So there's a, there's a YouTube documentary directed by myself, produced by Dr. Ahmed. It's a full length feature film. It's about an hour and 40 minutes. We interviewed Noam Chomsky, uh, Jesse Jackson, Hamza Youssef. It was actually widely um, praised uh, as a talk. It was a low, a low budget, low budget film, but we, but we did it. So then I move to Dublin and I basically wanted to do something like Dr. Ahmed had done an ethnographic study, but more specific because it's a PhD. And I focused on a specific group, um, Pakistanis that, you know, overwhelmingly kind of Muslim when you think of uh, the overall Pakistani population. So when I was in Dublin, this is where the Christian Muslim thing comes in. It was while I was in Dublin that I got a hold of John Andrew Morrow's book, The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad. And for me, this book and the content of it was, again, the antidote to the clash of civilizations. Because mm-hmm. ISIS, when this book came out, ISIS was doing its thing. And, and there was a lot of stuff happening in the world, which was not good. So then I just became really interested in the life of Prophet Muhammad. So this was like 2014. I really didn't study prophet muhammad's life up until then and then i just kind of really the the further i got into it the more i saw value in it Um, not only you know personally and and spiritually but also more of like the academic like public need like this is a service like these covenants and these books that i'm reading need to be shared out into the public and that's basically what i've been trying to do just bringing more knowledge into the public sphere and to shed light on these wonderful stories that have been documented of Muhammad's encounters with Christians as an antidote, you know, to the, to the clash. Mm, So mm. it's been quite a journey. Yeah. It's an incredible, incredible story. 
Your your encounter with uh, yes, he's Akbar at, Ahmed. He's at, yeah. he's at what university? American in D.C. Okay, American University. Yeah, and and you were doing a master's degree there. I did my undergraduate there. Undergraduate. And then I went to University of London to study international relations, and I actually focused on more sociological issues, integration with Mexican American identity. And miraculously, my wife, my wife ends up somehow being mixed up in that subject, uh, uh-huh. which is interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so do you remain in contact with Professor uh, Ahmad? Yes, we, we do. Um, the last time I spoke with Dr. Ahmed was after my Newsweek article that came out. So this is about a year and a half ago. And he had messaged me just saying that he was proud of what I was able to succinctly write about in that Newsweek article, because this Newsweek article went kind of viral, you know, Uh, it's a Newsweek. So it's a, it's a, the world knows about Newsweek and people were just shocked to see an article from someone like me talking about COVID and Prophet Muhammad's recommendations on tackling it. So he, he reached out to me and just said he was proud of me. And I wrote him back and just said, you know, he is like, um, it's, it's like a divine presence for me. It was like an angel that, that came and, and guided me. And it was meant to be like, God linked me with Dr. Ahmed and was just like, this is believe this teacher, believe in this person. And that's, that's what I did. You know, I, I put my faith and my trust in Dr. Ahmed and it did some amazing things, I think, you know? Yeah, he's he's a very important person in American culture, oh, yeah. especially after 9-11. Uh, he's highly influential and has a very big footprint in Washington, D.C. Especially interfaith, you know, yeah. the, the interfaith realm. I mean, he's he's um, he's an award winning professor after 9-11. He had just got there and then 9-11 happened. And then, yeah. you know, for him, that was that was his mission. The, the creator put him there to ease the 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 pain that that, uh, the the country experienced it's really true as we're as i'm listening to you i'm gonna have to collect all the all the links to all the things you reference the video the newsweek article so we'll have everything there for our hearers to go listen and watch why were you so capable at filmmaking was this a lifelong hobby or how did that uh... i was capable because of my enthusiasm and my ability to work hard because it was very hard but i had faith in what it could be i had absolutely no experience ever at filmmaking i was i I was 20 i was 22 and we had a small research team of four other assistants that traveled around the country with dr ahmed and basically he's like i want to make a documentary I don't want Al Jazeera or BBC following us with a huge crew because it'll be overwhelming. And he really wanted it to be like ethnographic, anthropological. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he was like, well, I'm, we're going to do it. Um, and then we just kind of looked around and they were, you know, everyone had their own task and I was just the, the wild card. And he was just like, do you want to do it? I was like, absolutely. I'll do anything. I'll do anything for this team. I believe in this team. I believe in this mission. And that's what I did. And obviously, Frank, like I messed up a bunch. And thankfully, Dr. Ahmed knew I was a, I was a complete amateur. You know, like I, lo- I, I, lost, I lost data, you know, like um, we had so much footage, right? So I would film it. We would get home to the hotel and I would have to clear the camera and the SIM card uh, to make more space. And we had this big clunky uh, uh, hard drive backup. This is like 2008. And like things just got lost. Like things were rewriting themselves. Like I had no idea what uh, I was doing. And um, thankfully, but we had enough to make this, this um, documentary. There's also a YouTube channel that has, um, I think there's like 58 videos on there. So I made uh I would make these short documentaries. So as we were in the field, you know, I would go home to my hotel room. We had all this footage and I would put together, you know, uh, five, 10 minute short documentaries on the people we met. And then at the end, we made it a documentary. You know where I edited 
actually. I edited it at um, Roosevelt Island uh, in, in New York City. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the last month of this book project. I was sitting with Robert Krupka, who's a, a, a film editor, and we would meet in his office, his office every day, you know, and I was just living on someone's couch. My best buddy, Mark, I was living on his couch for like two weeks in Manhattan. So every morning I would get up, I would take that big trolley thing over Roosevelt yeah, Island yeah. to make to make my big, you know, my my big super budget <laughs> documentary. Isn't that fantastic? It's yeah, just fantastic. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, it's a small world indeed. I I always cycled over the over the 59th Street Bridge. So if I had a flat tire, I might have ended up in the middle of your editing uh, suite. <laughs> it could have happened, you know. We don't even we don't even have the memory for it. It could have happened. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, isn't that fantastic? Yeah. I think my next question. I just want to take a look. I was going to ask why you wrote this particular book, but I think we heard that in a way. Yeah, you. I can add one thing. Yeah, I can add, between. I... I think there must be more, but somehow, somehow, the nine eleven hit you very hard and and then you come under the light of this irenic visionary uh professor ahmad uh, ahmed and that blended into somehow an extension of a persistent work in your life for bringing greater harmony among these two ma massive cultural spheres the biggest massive uh, that's ever existed in history i think that uh, yeah. Maybe Alexandria time. I don't know, but never Good two point. side by side like that. Mm. But anyway, this particular book does it does it have a, a special strategic or tactical part of the flow? Or yeah, yeah, it does. Um, so as you mentioned, Frank, the book is a really a biography of Muhammad's life, and subsequently, it's a history book on Islam and Christianity. But of all the biographies of Prophet Muhammad, and there are countless, yeah. countless, there haven't been really many at all, if any, that has told his life story through the prism of a specific group, Christians, right? So John Andrew Morrow's book, The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad, is it's not more like a textbook, but it's, it's more like academic where mine is like, it's a, it's a, it's a biography story. That's, mm -hmm. that's what it is. So yes. the book is unique in that way, you know, like some of the biographies I love of, of um, Prophet Muhammad's life, you know, um, Karen Armstrong, uh, Juan Cole, Martin Lings, and, and so on and so forth. They, they all have their own angles to it. You know, Juan Cole looked at it through the prism of civilizations, you know, so he looked at Muhammad's life story through the Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire. So my angle was just Christians specifically. Mm. And then the other angle is that I am, I guess, by profession, by title, a sociologist. And there haven't been many sociologists writing about mm. Prophet Muhammad's life. Obviously, it's a relatively new discipline, even though they trace it back to Ibn, Ibn Khaldun. Um, but I look at it through the prism of these, these angles, you know, cross-cultural navigation, um, racial equality, religious pluralism, civic nation building, like there, those are all kind of um, secular, like secular terms too. So like, I, I kind of, I, I take the religion, not out of it, obviously, if you read the book, it's heavy yeah. on theology and religion, There's but it's, it, yeah, it, it kind of center in, in some instances, it centers kind of sociological theory. And I think that's a contribution to the, mm. to the, to the body of literature on Muhammad's life. Excellent. That's very, very uh, illuminating. As I've already read it, it helps me think back on what I've read with more light. You mentioned a number of important Western scholars who've written biographies of Muhammad. You mentioned Karen Armstrong, Professor Ling, etc. Do you know, and here for you too, now you've introduced uh, yet another prism, as you just said, a prism through which to look at the life of the prophet. Do you know of these people you mentioned, and now you're, now you're in the bowl as well, do believing Muslims, uh, and especially those that have some responsibility for 
kind of orthodoxy of some sort, either out of Al-Azhar or, you know. Are any of the Western biographies very well received or regarded as, like, for example, uh, Karen Armstrong's biography, is that understood to be, wow, you've got us, you got to do him well? And uh... good. That's a really good question. And it reminds me of a article that has yet to be published that I read on a recent flight um, to, where was I? California, I think. This uh, peer-reviewed journal article was a history of the biographies of Muhammad. So it goes all the way back and then it brings us up to, yeah, it brings us up to the current. And then the, it had a component to it, this article of like the Western uh, body of knowledge, the Western literature. So I, so here's what I think. Uh, Yes, to answer your question succinctly, there are like Western articles or Western writers that is uh, that are well received. Um, now, now going as high up as Al Azhar, you know that's that's getting into stuffy oh, territory. Great. So I had just read an article that is yet to be published, but it's a, a peer-reviewed journal article which is focusing on the history of Prophet Muhammad's biographies, and it has a component to it that looks at the kind of Western contribution to the body of knowledge. And this article actually brought up the same people that I had just brought up, Karen Armstrong, um, Juan Cole, Martin Lings, William Montgomery Watt of the University of Edinburgh. So there are certainly Western perspectives uh, coming from Western scholars, if I could say that, that are highly regarded and reputable, for sure. Now, when we get to the elite, you know, Al-Azhar, I I haven't done my research on that. If Al-Azhar is giving the thumbs up to Karen Armstrong or some of these folks, but like Martin Lings, William Montgomery Watt, I mean, these are uh, Juan Cole, these are notable academics. And there are Muslim communities and Muslim scholars and leaders right here in the United States and in the so-called Western world who are also advocating for this kind of appreciation of these scholarly views coming from these some of these folks. So I know Juan Cole has had several encounters with uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf of Zaytuna College out in California. And there's a great deal of academic respect between those two uh, leaders. So yes, um, thankfully, good scholarship can just be viewed as good scholarship. And it shouldn't matter really who is writing it. If it's if it's academic, it's academic. That's the beauty of it. Yes. That uh, it's further down the line in my questions, but it comes all the way up to um, an, a form of encounter that many people may not be sensitive to, but the whole freedom of scholarly and critical inquiry into mm. sacred space uh, is a big, a big element of what of what you're undertaking here. And I I was going to ask about it later down the line, but you've touched upon it when describing the relationship between like Ling and uh, Cole and And Hamza 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 Yusuf. Yusuf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so there are certainly people who, you know, scholars, leaders who feel like they're almost kind of like gatekeepers to this body of knowledge. You know, like they're at the door and like you have to knock and to see if you can get permission to to enter, (laughs) which... um, I think much of that has to do with identity and that's where it becomes problematic. You know, a lot of people criticize me. I don't even think they read my work, but they're just like, well, he's Christian. So it's, I'm automatically written off yeah, automatically by, by some people. And, you know, the fact that I don't have a, a theological degree or a religious studies degree. I mean, this is another way of people kind of not allowing you into this space and you know i don't understand that perspective um i think there's something else you know going on in, inside of people um that re- you know they refuse to kind of let you in like that but um you know it's a it's a tough um it's a it's a tough battle and then sometimes it can get quite um i mean it can get like hostile so it's not only that they're not letting you in like they're slamming the door on your face and they're telling you basically trying to intimidate you to not come back like don't write about this thing you know people are trying to silence silence me literally like or to put it in kind of 
more modern terms like unplatform me you know so people are like don't retweet craig don't like him don't promote his things because he is who he is and like on the conspiratorial side it's like he has an agenda you know and so people really try to um limit you know limit the reach that you could potentially have and it's not just an academic thing i mean it comes from pseudo academics it comes from religious leaders it's really political but it's also frank it, it's it goes back to identity and identity is something that i've spent you know my last 15 years studying and thinking about and negotiating myself and when we get to a point where we say that this person is this category, this category, this category, and this category, and therefore cannot speak about this. That's a problem of, of, of not only freedom of speech, but like just thought and expression and possibility. So it's, yeah. it's a slip. It's a dangerous thing, actually. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous thing. We've somehow hit the stratosphere of that problem in every corner of life where whether you're allowed to even say this line is moving slowly, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like you, you don't, you're not from that shared experience, or you've not been on the line long enough to, yeah. you know. I mean, I made up a silly comparison, but we're just in the thickest sump of this issue of whether, uh, and and it's a massive loss. Of course, perspective always helps us. I would love nothing more than to hear somebody that knows nothing about New York. Tell me for a whole day what New York. Yeah, what do you know? Like. I, yeah. Otherwise, I'll never know You'll this never know. idea that I have the sole right to. It's really hurt our family, our global family. Carry on. Uh. Yeah, it, it hurts community. You know, it, it hurts community, and, and community is multi-layered. So, Frank, you you use the term shared experiences, and I think that's the critical thing. So, going back to my point, if we look at you know, as someone with this identity, you know, racial, ethnic, religious, national, this is what it is. And therefore, because I am these things, I cannot relate to you that we have not had shared experiences. You know, we definitely have had different experiences. There's no question about that. But we've also had shared experiences Absolutely. where we can see eye to eye and we can become like almost more uh, brotherly or human, where I can understand you at a human level, in addition to all of these complications with your identity. But when people start saying these categories mean different experience that is partially true but the whole truth is that it's more nuanced and that we are actually similar in many ways absolutely and we should talk about these similarities yeah yeah, yeah. we're moving ever more out to the surface characteristics and missing it. i mean how could anyone say there's no shared experiences have you ever watched your one-year-old get too close to the edge of the bed if you're yes. Chinese, if you're Muslim, if you're black, if you're white, did, exactly. did, did your heart do the exact same thing in that moment, no matter who or what you are? There, and there's there's billions of shared human experience. Um, it's kind of like, uh, because I've been in a line of work similar to yours for the course of my life, I'm involved in interreligious relations. And uh, one, thing you, one thing we learned for sure is the, the more we try to bring peace, the more all sides <laughs> turn again, you know, at least yeah. some part of all sides always. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not easy. And you know who put it the best? Frank, you might know Uncle Safi Kaskas. I call him Uncle Safi Kaskas. Yeah, Safi. You, yeah. you know Safi, you know? So Safi once just provided a very simple comment on one of my posts. And, and we talk kind of, you know, relatively regularly and he just said that you know i was getting a load of you know flack for a better i forget what it what it was but he just said that being a bridge builder you know like you're literally like a bridge and what do people do like they walk over bridges so like you're you're just as a bridge builder you're just trying to you're just trying to stand up and you're going to take a lot of pounding a lot of beating but you, but you but you remain you know you're strong you have pillars your your mission is is rooted in something that can withstand all of these this stomping so yeah. I, I think that's very very true and i try to remind myself of that like this is 
you know, you, you're kind of, you're boxing like four different things rather than exactly. just one entity. Yeah. 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 That's a great metaphor. Great metaphor. I like that. I've never thought of it. Yeah. I never th- it's just you're a, a, what people call a doormat, right? You're a long much. stretched out doormat. Yeah. <laughs> they, dra- they drag their feet uh, you know, on you. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> or, or trucks. Yeah. Yeah. Let me see if I have one more question and then we'll continue on another another session. And thanks for conversation. I asked if we could make it twice because there's a tremendous amount. uh, 100%. This has been very rich. Let me just get to one other question. From afar, you've struck me as somehow managing well, writing and deadlines, and it's hard for people. Uh, you're a family man. You ha- you have a new family, and uh, and you're not a you're not a careless family man. You're deeply mm-hmm. care. The time with the, your wife and your your daughters is important. It's you're not like the guy that comes home at eleven o'clock at night, uh, mm-hmm. and yet somehow you make these deadlines. Uh, another thing about the contemporary situation is. There's an incessant flood of information and our mind leaps at it and we want to write a short thing or we want to have a quick call or the flood of life against a sustained project like writing a beautiful book like you've just created. Do you have any secrets or or things that to help the, the young writer or the struggling or distracted folks? How does that happen in your life that you consistently produce very impressive and very enjoyable and illuminating work. Well, first, thank you for those very kind words, Frank. Um, I think there's a couple secret, you know, uh, ingredients. The first is quite big picture. You know, growing up, my dad, who really didn't come from much of anything and had quite a difficult childhood, he told me as a young teenager, whatever you ultimately decide to do in your life, make sure you love to do it. And that always struck me, you know, he was not really able to do that. He, well, he could have done it, but he opted for more financial things. And I was more about, well, how can I, you know, what do I, what do I love to do? And you know, it, it ultimately became this passion of learning and knowledge and, and the, the possibilities that can come out of scholarship. So I have deep passion for what I do. I have a lot, a lot of passion and I love doing it. I find it challenging. Uh, it's enriching. And ultimately, I believe in it. I believe in the power of scholarship. Of, of knowledge and, and what comes out of it. So that helps me to keep going because I believe in it, you know, and I tell students this as well, you know, um, if they're like thinking about going to graduate school, a PhD, I said, well, number one thing, you've got to want to do it. You've got to love doing it. You, you have to be involved and not like 90%, 95%. Like you got to be in many ways, you got to be all in. Now on the more kind of practical side, I'm good with my scheduling, I guess. I'm, I'm able to figure out how to use my time. I also know when to drop things and have fun and relax and go, and go do something different. You know, because you can't, when I was doing my PhD, I got completely burnt out at one point. I was doing way too much work and it was way too difficult. And I just, you know, literally burnt out, no gas in the tank no gas in the tank and couldn't do it and, you know, dealt with it for months, months on end. But now I know like, Hey, just, okay. You've done three hours. Good stuff. Go do something completely different. Go for a walk, uh, go work out, uh, go just hang out, go to a restaurant, go out. So that it's a combination of like big picture, small picture, you know, you've got to be disciplined every day, but there has to be, more vision to it, for sure. Good, good, good. That's very helpful. Grateful to hear it. As we come towards closing, I just want to tell the listeners and people who will be reading the transcript that 
we're discussing we're discussing a piece of work that might very well might very well be seminal you, as i read it i was quite surprised at where it took me because i consider myself knowledgeable about islam thanks to having intimate bonds of mentors and friendships similar to you all my life for decades i i have my doctoral degree in religious studies and uh, religious thought. And yet I saw things in what you've written here that makes me think and makes me possibly think I have to add additional understanding that I had not anticipated. I was just reading it in order to be to do a decent work in this interview. But, but I think I may have to add to my thought on it. So as the only reason why I mention that is because I want to get into a lot of really concrete stuff that you've covered that I think might be might be seminal and might be novel. This, and just as a little teaser, I think you've brought, I think you've brought the theological and philosophical essence of what Islam is and the Christianity into which, or that surrounded it in its arising far closer than others may have noticed before. Thank and you. that's what I want to look at when we come back. Uh, and so uh, we've been a little kind of friendly in general, but I don't want the listeners to think that, 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 I'm, that we're gonna just come and, and talk more about general, take a break when you need it kind of, yeah. which was helpful. So, uh, so I really do wanna get into very important elements and really deep research that you did. You could not have done this easily to, to try to take up try to take up theological roots of two systems that are complex. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. Let's so, dive into it. I'm all uh, that sounds like a, a really interesting conversation <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So let's let's dive into it. Yeah. We'll do that time. next time we're together. Next time, yes, sir. Dr. Constantine or Craig, this very Thank happy you. for your time today. Thank you, Doctor Kaufman. I didn't know you were uh, uh, who you are. So yeah, we per, per, yes, yes, it's yeah. funny. It's it's a real pleasure, Frank. Uh, thank thank you. you, and I look forward to our next chat. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye bye.